And good morning. I am um, uh, happy to be back um, with you guys teaching this morning. Uh, it has been a refreshing and a slightly odd experience after preaching every week for the last 20 years to have uh, been able to sit under the teaching of Marty and Meg over the last couple of weeks and uh, thoroughly enjoyed uh, the messages that they uh, brought to us. If you have missed those messages, they are worth going back and listening to on the website. If you ever miss a Sunday, you can always check out um, messages on the website, um, on the podcast page there. Uh, I am a fairly easygoing person. There are very few things in life that really, really set me off. But one of those things is political text messages. And right now, I am getting them from both Michigan and Ohio. Because Michigan hasn't figured out I've moved yet, but Ohio has. Uh, so just like, they're all over the place. Like, my phone keeps going off. Um, while I'm washing dishes or watching TV or in the middle of meetings or trying to read or whatever, like, I just, like, is anybody, I, I'm getting like six to ten a day at this point. Anybody else? It must stop. We must stop it. We're mobilizing today. We're marching it now. Um, yeah, so the, I, they just drive me bananas. But they're almost done with, right? Election is right around the corner. And after that, they will go away for a while. Um, and I will be happy again. But because the election is almost right around the corner, I thought, and since we're talking about disciples, I thought it would be an interesting um, thought experiment today to talk about discipleship and elections and voting. Um, and so um, I want to take a few minutes and go through uh, every place in the Bible uh, that I can find that talks about disciples and elections and voting. So um, get your Bibles ready. Here we go, front to back. Ready? Okay, that's it. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. Um, that, that's really it. Um, and it's not that the Bible is unaware of elections and voting and that kind of thing. I mean, Rome was a republic before it was an empire. The Greeks invented democracy long before Jesus was born on the earth. Like, the, the, the writers of the, of the Bible are not unaware of political systems. Um, I, I have heard it said that the Bible is, is apolitical or, or non-political, and I don't believe that at all. The Bible seems to be a highly political book. Jesus seems to be an intensely political person, just not in the ways that we're used to thinking about politics. Uh, and so while I can't really talk about discipleship and voting, Jeffrey asked me when I walked in today, how am I supposed to vote? You're supposed to tell me today, right? No, no. Um, since, since I can't really do that, I, I do want to take a look at, at something that the Bible does say about us as political people. Uh, the Bible says several things that are worth taking a look into, but one of the most startling of those things and one of the most important of those things is found in the book of Philippians at the end of chapter 3. So I'm going to spend a little time in Philippians 3 and 4 today. If you've got your Bible, feel free to follow along there, or the words will be up on the wall behind me, as always. But in Philippians uh, chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, we find a really pretty startling statement, at least it should be startling to us. I'm sure it would have been to the original audience. The Apostle Paul writes to the church in Philippi and he says this, he says, but our citizenship is in heaven 
And it is from there that we are expecting a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will transform the body of our humiliation, that it may be conformed to the body of his glory by the power that also enables him to bring all things subject to himself. This is an intensely political statement. If you are living in first century Roman Empire, where very few people really are citizens of the empire and very many people are kind of subjugated to the empire, Paul comes along and and in um, the Holy Spirit, he says to the church, you are citizens now. You have citizenship, something that most people living in the empire may not have had. Although in the city of Philippi, a fairly major city in the empire, there would have been Roman citizens there among the church. And he says to them, you are citizens, but not citizens of the, of the thing that you might think. You're not citizens of a worldly empire, a worldly nation, but you're citizens of God's kingdom. That's what Paul means when he says the heavenly uh, kingdom, that our citizenship is in heaven. Uh, he says that, that you're, you're citizens of God's kingdom, and we expect a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus. By the way, both Savior and Lord were titles that were used to refer to Caesar. Those were, those were personal titles that Caesar held as head of the empire. And Paul says, no, 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 no. In, in our citizenship, in our political worldview as followers of Jesus, we declare that he is Savior and that he is Lord and that we belong to a radically different kingdom than what the world thinks. We are citizens of the heavenly kingdom. Well, why does that matter? Because Paul shares this teaching to the church specifically in the context of being a disciple. If we back up a few verses to verse 17, we find these words. Brothers and sisters, join with me in imitating, I'm sorry, join me in imitating uh, and observe those who live according to the example you have in us. Join in imitating. That's the language we've been using the last few weeks. That's the language Marty has shared with us, that I've shared with us. We are imitators of God, right? That's what a disciple is. We're learning to imitate God. We're learning to imitate Jesus. We're learning to follow Jesus so closely that we become more and more and more and more like him. And it's in this context that Paul says, you're kingdom citizens. You're heavenly citizens. You're you're no longer earthly citizens. You're not looking for an earthly savior. You're not looking for an earthly Lord. We already have a savior. We already have a Lord. And we're expecting him. We're waiting on him uh, to show up. There is no salvation, Paul says, for, for us in worldly politics. There is no salvation for us in worldly politics of any kind, of any stripe. There just isn't. Our salvation is secured in Jesus and Jesus alone. He and he alone is Lord. His kingdom 
alone is our kingdom. Our citizenship is in heaven, and we're anticipating a Savior from there. We're anticipating that he is involved in day-to-day life now. We are anticipating Jesus to show up in ways both great and small today, in our lives, in the lives of our church, in the lives of the church worldwide. We're anticipating Jesus to show up on the day, the day of the Lord someday, to reign fully as Savior and Lord. We anticipate Jesus both now and in a day yet to come, and we believe that we are part of his kingdom both now and in a day yet to come. We are kingdom citizens. And Paul feels like he needs to say this to the church. Your kingdom citizens, as disciples, as people who have said, we're following Jesus together. Your kingdom citizens, Jesus is your Savior, Jesus is your Lord, not an earthly power. Why does he feel like he needs to say this? Because that's not how everybody was living. We had people in the church in Philippi who had decided that they were wanted to be disciples, but they didn't want to live a kingdom way. And Paul says that that is really going to cause some misery. Uh, verses 18 and 19 explain. They read like this. For many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. I have often told you of them, and now I tell you even with tears. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly, and their glory is in their shame. Their minds are set on earthly things. Paul says that there is a group of people who apparently have called themselves um, to be in Christ. They, they acknowledge Jesus, they, they have come to him, they're part of the church in Philippi, and yet they're not living as kingdom citizens. They are, they are fulfilling their own appetites, Paul says. They're living in a way that pleases themselves. They're living in a way that makes sense to themselves. And he says, I'm telling you this, and I'm warning you of this, not in anger, but through tears. It's breaking Paul's heart when disciples choose to live like this, to live for themselves. And he breaks his heart because he says that destruction is going to be the end result of this. Because their minds are set on the earthly instead of the heavenly. And we can get like that, can't we? I can. I can get wrapped up in the earthly. Uh, I can get wrapped up in earthly politics. I can get wrapped up in, in thinking that, that this vote or this candidate or this measure or whatever is so vitally important that everything hangs upon it. I can get wrapped up in other things too. It doesn't have to be politics. There are any number of things in our world that I can get just completely subsumed by and consumed by this idea of, of following my own wants and my own desires, the way that I want the world to be, the way that I wish the world was. And Paul would warn me through his tears, that way leads to destruction. Your mind is being set on earthly things. How can that be when you're a kingdom citizen? And apparently something like this was happening in the church in Philippi. That there were people in the church who had become consumed with the earthly, And they had forgotten that as disciples, their hope was set on Jesus. They had forgotten as disciples that their kingdom was God's kingdom, not any earthly kingdom. They had forgotten that as disciples, they have a Lord and Savior, and it's not anybody 
uh, in an earthly position of authority, and it's not themselves either. We have a tendency to turn ourselves into our own lords and saviors, uh, which is really um, easy to do until we you know, hit a situation that we cannot save ourselves from. Uh, and we realize again, oh yeah, maybe I'm, maybe I'm not all that. Uh, happens to me every time I can't find my car keys. Uh, reminded like, oh hey, I'm not in charge of the world. If I was, they'd magically appeared. Um, and with things, of course, more important than that. But there's this situation happening in Philippi where, where there is a church that is partially broken because there are people in the church who are absolutely convinced that they can be Jesus' disciples and still follow their own desires instead of being kingdom citizens. And we just can't do that. So what does it look like to be a kingdom citizen? What does it look like to set aside our own desires and follow the desires of Christ? Well, very helpfully, Paul explains that in chapter 4 of Philippians. So let's move into chapter 4, the first three verses say this. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, uh, let me pause right here just for a second. My dad is the king of bad church humor. And one of the things that he loves to say is that whenever you run across a therefore in scripture, you need to know what it's there for which is a terrible thing to say, but it's also true, it happens to be true. So when a chapter begins with the word therefore, this is a clue to you that there's a really bad chapter division happening in the Bible. Uh, the Bible was not written in chapters and verses. You guys know this, is this new information to anybody? Okay, good. Um, if it is, if you're sitting there and go, oh wow, I didn't know that and I don't wanna raise my hand, that's fine. I didn't find out until a few years ago myself. Um, but the Bible is not originally written in chapters and verses and they were added quite a long time after, the Bible was intended to be read in these very large chunks, kind of all at once. And um, somebody very helpfully stuck a chapter division uh, at, uh, right here uh, where it really needs not to be. Because we need to know that chapter 4, the beginning of chapter 4, is connected to the end of chapter 3. Since we are kingdom citizens, since we should not follow our own appetites, since we should not follow worldly ways, since we are kingdom citizens and we are eagerly anticipating Jesus, therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, my beloved. In what way? Well, in this way. I urge Iodia and Syntyche, Aren't you glad those aren't your names? I urge Iodia and Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my loyal companion, help these women, for they have struggled beside me in the work of the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are in the book of life. Iodia and Syntyche show up in the Bible because they are arguing with each other. That is not how I want history to remember me. But this is how we have Yodia uh, and Syntyche. They are at odds with one another. Two women in the church who are fighting with each other for some unknown reason. I have no idea what their dispute was about. Probably the color of carpet in the church. I don't know. Probably something a little more substantial than that. But whatever their issue was... Paul is saying, you have forgotten that you are kingdom citizens, you are behaving like your minds are set on worldly things, and you are only after what will satisfy your own appetites. And it has to stop. 
we have to come back to being of one mind, of the same mind in the Lord. And he pleads with them. I urge Yodi and Sintiki to be of the same mind in the Lord. But he doesn't just mention them, he mentions somebody else. You, my loyal companion. We have no idea who this is. Paul doesn't stick a name in here. Possibly, in some footnotes of the Bible, you'll see a name called Syzygous, which is the Greek word for loyal companion, I guess. That's a really weird name, too. Um, I don't know who Paul is talking to here. Is it a person named Syzygous? Is it the person who brought the letter? Is it the person who's reading the letter? Here's what I think. When Paul says, you, my loyal companion, I think he's talking to you and me. I think he's talking to the church. He says, hey, Yodia and Syntyche are not getting along. They are divided right now because their minds are set on worldly things instead of kingdom things. And you, my dear companion, you, the church, you have a responsibility in helping them center themselves as disciples on the kingdom and learning to be of one mind in Jesus. Being of one mind in Christ, by the way, does not mean that we agree on every single thing to, uh, to the nth degree, every iota of, of everything. But it does mean that we will agree to live in Christ as kingdom citizens no matter what no matter how we see the rest of the world around us, no matter what stance we might take on any particular issue, no matter what life throws at us, we have decided that we will be one in Christ. We will have in us the same mind that is in Christ Jesus. We will have in us a mind and a spirit that honors God. We will have in us a mind and a spirit that declares that Jesus and Jesus alone is Savior. We will have in us a mind and a spirit that declares we are kingdom people. We will not be distracted by worldly things. Stand firm in this way. Stand firm in what way? Stand firm in the way of unity. Stand firm in the way of, of coming together and being of one mind in the Lord. And that means that kingdom people, that disciples reject the things that divide us. How can we do this? Again, helpfully, Paul continues. Uh, for the next few verses, Paul lays out a game plan for Yodia and Syntyche and the rest of us. And again, because we tend to chunk the Bible out in very small parts, I think we, we kind of miss this. We, we just take the Bible kind of one little verse at a time and, and forget that it's all connected to the stuff that came before it. So, so because we are disciples, and because we are part of God's kingdom, and because we don't want our minds set on worldly things, we are going to have the same mind in Christ and not allow division, and this is how. We pick up in verse 4 of chapter 4. He says, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Do you want to be of one mind in the Lord? It begins with rejoicing together. Paul thought it was so important that he stuck it in there twice. I will say it again so you don't miss it. Rejoice. Listen, it is really, really hard to be divided with and angry at people you are celebrating with. Right? It, I have very seldom have I seen people super angry with each other at a party. When we are celebrating with each other, 
When we are celebrating Christ together, when we're worshiping together, when we're celebrating each other's lives, when we're celebrating each other's accomplishments, when we're celebrating each other's milestones, that brings us together in a way that overcomes worldly division. He goes on and says, let your gentleness be known to everyone for the Lord is near. If you want to be of the same mind with other people in Christ, if you want to be united with them, we need gentleness in our lives. Being gentle, listen, being gentle, I think, is maybe the most Christ-like thing that we can do in our world today. I think it's maybe the most counter-cultural way that we can possibly live in our society. To be gentle with one another. In a world that is filled with hatred and violence, be gentle like Jesus. Let your gentleness be evident to all, for the Lord is near. And do not worry about anything but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Very often this verse gets terribly, terribly misused to tell us that we should not worry, um, that worry is, the worry and anxiety is a lack of faith. I don't think that at all. I think that, that worry and anxiety come into our lives. There's, uh, that's just the reality of it. But I think that Paul is offering to us uh, a choice between letting worry and anxiety run our life, just allowing world, uh, worry and anxiety to have free reign in our life, or trying to give our life over to become people of prayer and thanksgiving, especially when it comes to other people. You can live your life absolutely consumed by worry of what other people think of you, what other people are saying about you, what other people might do to you or have done to you. Or you can live your life consumed by prayer for other people. Uh, my grandmother uh, was a wonderful, wonderful lady, and she often would tell me a story about praying for her sister-in-law, who she didn't like very much. Uh, and she decided that, that there, was no, there was no way to change her sister-in-law, so she was just going to pray for her, that God would change her. And so she started this prayer regimen. Daily she would pray, God, would you please change my sister-in-law's heart? She said what she discovered over about a year of praying was that God did not change her sister-in-law's heart, but God did change her own heart. And she began to develop a deep, deep love for her sister-in-law. And then she began to live out that love for her sister-in-law. And wouldn't you know it, after that happened, her sister-in-law began to change. And she said that she developed this deep and beautiful, meaningful friendship with her sister-in-law that lasted years and years and years. It doesn't always work like that, but I really would like to believe it works like that often. So instead of giving our lives over to worry, especially about other people, let's give our lives over to prayer for other people and live in peace and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus live at peace with one another one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible is Romans 12 18 which says that as far as it depends on you live at peace with everyone I love that verse as far as it depends upon you how far does it depend on you Pretty much all the way. Nobody else gets to tell you whether or not you want to live at peace with someone. That is always your decision. Even if somebody else doesn't want to live at peace with you, you can choose to live at peace with them to the best of your ability. And that peace 
That peace of God, when we choose it, guards our hearts and minds. It keeps us away from worldly thinking. keeps us centered in on kingdom thinking. Verse 8 continues. He says, finally, beloved, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is pleasing, whatever is commendable, if anything is excellent, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about such things. Where is your focus at? Iodia and Syntyche and you and I, where is your focus at? Are you focused on the things of God or are you focused on the things of the world? Well, that will determine whether you are living up to being a kingdom citizen or whether you're sliding into worldly ways. There is a lot of terrible in the world. I'm not going to try to sugarcoat that. There's just a lot of bad. And Sometimes we have to acknowledge that. Sometimes we have to engage that. And, and sometimes we need to push back against that. But it doesn't mean that we need to let bad consume our lives. Every now and again, it's time to stop doom scrolling Twitter. Every now and again, it's time to take some of the social media apps off of our phone or turn off the news for a while and just be in God's word and just be with other people to take in beauty and celebration, to eat together, to share together, uh, to celebrate God's creation together, to get out in the woods. It doesn't have to be bad all the time. We don't have to let that be our focus. Whatever is good, center on that. And finally, he says in verse 9, keep on doing the things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, and the God of peace will be with you. In other words, we end where we began. Become imitators, keep imitating. Keep on pressing into your discipleship. Keep on pressing into living in the way of Christ. Keep on pressing into these things that you have learned and become convinced of. Keep on pressing into kingdom ways, to kingdom thinking, to kingdom activity. And there's a promise there that if we keep walking in the way of Jesus, that we stay in the presence of God. The peace of God will be with you, he says. When I started writing the sermon, it was a completely different sermon. There were other conversations that I wanted to have with you today. I wanted to have conversations about the danger of white Christian nationalism. I wanted to have conversations about how we... Um, how we honor authority and still speak truth to power. I, I wanted to, to talk about the problem, uh, uh, the intense problem of voting for the lesser of two evils. I, I wanted to talk about the danger and the idolatry uh, of American exceptionalism. But the farther I got into planning today, I realized that all of those conversations, which are worthwhile and important conversations to have, all of those conversations rested on this one first. That before everything else, we as disciples of Jesus are kingdom citizens. We are kingdom citizens. We are not worldly citizens. And so our minds and our hearts and our desires and our actions have to be set in kingdom ways. Because if they're not, we will just end up divided like Iodia and Syntyche. We will just end up 
divided in the church, ripping at the soul of the church. And so Paul's plea to Yodia and Syntyche resonates with me. And I hope it does with you. Yodia and Syntyche find a way to come together and be of one mind in Christ. And you, my true companion, you the church, find a way to help them do that. I love that when Paul talks about Yodia and Syntyche, he doesn't bash them. He doesn't say which one's right or which one's wrong. In fact, he praises them both. He says they're workers in Christ. They're, they're my co-workers. They're my dearly beloved sisters. This is how we should feel about one another as we strive to help each other live in unity as kingdom citizens. Who's your Iodia or your Syntyche? How will you help them be of the same mind in Christ? How will you be kind to them, pray for them, rejoice with them? Commit to that. Commit to making the church a place where we can have differences but still be united in Christ. Commit to making this church a place where we can have differences but still be united in Christ. Where we can be kingdom people, kingdom citizens. The politics of this world, I do not need to tell you this, but it's true. The politics of this world are so intensely and insanely divisive. And they're that way on purpose. They're designed to pit us against each other. They're designed to separate us. They're designed to make us believe that somebody is right and somebody is wrong, that somebody can be a winner and somebody else needs to be a loser. But disciples are called to a different life. We're called to be kingdom citizens, even in the midst of our differences. We're called to have one mind in Christ, even when we disagree. We're called to be kind and loving and peaceable and rejoicing and prayerful people together. And take just a minute and imagine, imagine what it would be if Christians were actually like that. Take just a minute and imagine what it would be if we were like that. In a world that is absolutely shredded, in a nation that is absolutely shredded by the politics of this world. What if we embraced the politics of Jesus? What if we embraced unity? What if we embraced the kingdom? What if we embraced being citizens of God's kingdom? What a different way we would look from the world. And what a difference we might be able to make. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word, um, difficult as it is some days. Uh, Father, we thank you for your word today that calls us just as Paul called Yodia and Syntyche so many years ago to be of one mind in Christ. Father, that is not easy. That is really, really not easy. But it's what you've called us to. So Father, we pray that you would make us one just as Jesus prayed in the garden for us to be one, we pray that you would make that so here and now. 
We pray, Father, that we would set aside the ways of the world and our allegiance to earthly things. And instead, we would commit and commit hard to being kingdom citizens as disciples of Jesus. To remember that our allegiance lies in a different place, that we are expecting a Savior and a Lord that is unlike any kind of earthly Savior or Lord. Since this is the case, Father, help us to stand firm, to stand firm in unity and to stand firm in love and in kindness and in rejoicing and in prayer and in peace with one another. Father, as we do that, would you make us a light unto the world that we can demonstrate a different way of living that we can demonstrate a way of living that is in unity with one another, even if we are not always in agreement. We are still united in Christ. Father, would you make this true? I pray this for this people. In the name of Jesus. Amen.